0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Matthew 26 verses 20 through 31, and is entitled "Were You There in the Upper Room?" So, the last time we were together, which was three weeks ago, we began looking at the last week of Jesus' ministry, the last week of His uh, earthly ministry, and uh, that what we call Holy Week, and all the things that go with it. And we started last time by asking the question, "Were you there?" When Jesus rode into Jerusalem a week and a half ago, we have to walk down the mountain, the 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 Mount of Olives, where same spot where Jesus walked, the same through the same gate, it's still there. Uh, you can still see it. And uh, one of the one of the prizes we tell people when they go, pick up a rock, because this is a place where Jesus said, If if they don't praise me, right, remember the Pharisees, Rebuke your disciples, these rocks will go out, well, is the cheapest One of the cheapest and best souvenirs you can get is a rock off the side of that hill. And so they got a lot of rocks over there. So there's rocks in places you can just get. And there's some of the best stuff uh, that I would recommend over over some of the other trinkets that you can buy over there. And there's a bunch of that stuff as well. So we began asking that question. We're going to continue to go back in time to that week 2,000 years ago. Uh, We were at the first day of that week, the Sunday, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We're going to move three days ahead to the Wednesday in which Jesus is going to find himself in an upper room uh, with his disciples performing a meal that we're going to be performing, and we often do perform together. Of all the days, of all the things that happened in that final week, the only thing that we repeat consistently is this supper, is what took place in that upper room, not his riding into Jerusalem, not his crucifixion, unless we have some kind of Easter cantata going on, but this thing we repeat. Why do we do it? Because he told us to. Why this? Why is it so important? Why does it matter? And so anyway, so Jesus is traveling with his disciples to Jerusalem, which by the way, they would have done every year. This wasn't the first time he was there for Passover. Every able-bodied Jewish person was supposed to be in Jerusalem three different times. Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. He was there at least three times a year. Jerusalem not a, Israel Israel's not a big place. They walk over there. He was there for Passover. He would have been there before. It was just routine as far as the disciples were concerned. Of course, this was a very special Passover. We come to find out because this was the Passover which Jesus was going to be crucified on. So he's there. They know the routine. The whole idea is, is that the day of preparation is the day before Passover, so they would prepare food. Now, here's, here's the way it works during that week. Let's say, for instance, I believe Jesus, this is a Wednesday night. I know that some of you think Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and there's, it's impossible for him to die on Friday, because he has to be three days and three nights in the grave. And he says that. And where we came up with the Good Friday, I don't know, but I'm not trying to offend your Good Fridays. I'm just trying to tell you it doesn't. the math doesn't work. So there ha- it had to have been at least a good Thursday, or maybe some argue even a good Wednesday that he passed away. But anyway, that aside, I think this is a Wednesday. He's three days after his coming into Jerusalem. He's it's the day of preparation. So if it happened on a Wednesday, here's what happens on Thursday. Thursday is Passover. That's a high holy day. You do no work on that day. The next day is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a high holy day. You do no work on that day, which that would have been Friday. The next day, of course, is Saturday, which is a Sabbath, which is a holy day. You do no work on that day. So guess what happens on Wednesday? All your food, you can't cook. You can't even light a fire by the law of God. You can't even light a fire inside your own house. From the Passover time. So you've got possibly a three-day period in which you can't cook, you can't do anything, you can't wash anything, you can't go anywhere, you're stuck. Uh, and so that's probably the process you're looking at here. So Jesus sends his disciples to prepare for a Passover event that's going to be at least three days. So before Sunday gets here, the Sunday is the day that, in which they're going to be able to at least get out and about. Sunday's the first day of the week for them. I know it is for us too, but for us, Monday, to them, it's a work day. Sunday's a work day. In Jerusalem, it's busy. Saturday, you can go anywhere you want to. Sunday, you better get up early because it's going to be packed, because people are moving on that day. Anyway, so they go to make preparations. Of course, they're asking the whys and the winds, and how do we get this done? And Jesus is already ahead of them. He says, Go into the city. They're camping outside the city because it's full of people. It's, you know, it's, it's peak season. Camping outside the city, going to the city, you'll find a man carrying a water jar. You'll say, well, how do you know? I mean, how many people carried, they didn't have plumbing, and so everybody had to carry water. Well, uh, forgive me, ladies, carrying water was women's work. So if you saw a man doing it, it was something special, and that's how they would know. They're going to, to see one of those, if at all. So if you saw one, he says, follow that man. He will take you to a house where there is an upper room. That's where we get the statement from. Jesus calls it that. There, go and make preparations. So that's what they do. And then evening comes, sundown at 6 o'clock is when when, uh, Passover begins. And uh, they go in, and they begin to observe something that Christians have been reenacting for 2,000 years. And so let's read the story of what took place in the upper room. They're there. It's after 6. Preparations have been made. It says, now, when Jesus, verse 20, had come... Excuse me, my voice is still not in shape yet. I been. I don't talk a lot when I go to Israel. I know some of you some of you that went know that I don't talk a lot over there because it's my vacation. I mean, I'm not talking over there. No, that's not the reason. Because the guy that leads us, the guy by the name of Brad, bro, is that good. You really don't need me to talk. We're going to go over there here, Pastor Bill. No, you're not. You don't need to. He's really good. Listen to him. And give me a break. <laughs> now, <laughs> I like what I do. Don't get me wrong. When evening had come, he, that is Jesus, was reclining at the table with his 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. What a way to start a celebration, right? Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely they suspected themselves? Wow, we'll talk about that in a bit. He answered and said, he who is quoting from the Old Testament Psalm, Psalm, in Psalms, uh, he who has dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who, is, who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Woo. Judas, who was betrayed. So they go around the table. Surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. Comes to Judas, says the same thing. Jesus says, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it. Notice this is not not any Jews here. I don't see any Jews. Maybe you are, but most of us here are unfamiliar with the Passover. Passover doesn't have random bread in it. It's not like it's just laying out there. This is not Thanksgiving where you just say, pass me some bread. And No, it's very specifically laid out. They have certain things that they do certain times, and they have names for all of it. This was a very specific part of the Passover meal. He takes that specific piece of bread and brace it and says, this is my body, broken for you. They would have never heard that before. Passover was an old meal. This is something very new in a very old recipe, if you will. And then he doesn't just do that. By the way, who breaks the bread? He does. It's all symbolic, isn't it? Yes. Who breaks the bread? Who kills him? Well, the Romans don't kill Jesus and the Jews don't kill Jesus. Who can kill the Son of God, right? Only he lays down his life and takes it up again, he says. And this, he says, is my blood. Drink it, he says. The blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, which was, like I said, this is all scripted for the Passover. It's part of what they would do. When they were done with the meal, they would sing a hymn, and then they would leave. They sing a hymn, and they went out to the place where they were staying, which, of course, is where Judas finds them later, the Mount of Olives. So here today, uh, we're about to reenact the events of that night. And our disciples, if you will, have already prepared a meal for us. So the upper room, if you will, you're six feet up anyway above sea level, thank God. Here you are. We're going to be celebrating this. Why of why all the things that happened that week, as significant as they were, why is it only this that we reenact? Why is it this meal so special? Why do we recreate the events of that night? Well, I want to speak to you about that this morning. Why is this important? Well, first of all, it's something like I've already said. This is a meal that's based on an old recipe, in particular, the Passover. 1,500 years prior to Jesus, God rescued the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, from the grip of Pharaoh, from certain death, from the destruction of their children. He rescued them by a heavy hand against the Israel. Ten plagues he exacted against them and pulled them out of that country. They needed saving. He saved them. He inaugurated a celebration. They didn't come up with it. God says, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to do it every single year on the same day that I did it to remind you of what I did. They need to be rescued, and God rescued them. There was only, the only thing that came between them and certain death was the blood of a lamb, and he made them reenact that over and over and over again, if he had only written it in a scroll or something, it would have fallen into misuse and they would have forgotten about it because no one reads that stuff. And so to etch it on their brains, he, he does something that, that engages their, their ears, their eyes, their, their sense of touch, uh, their, their taste. Uh, The descendants of Israel, it was going to be etched on their brains forever. He wanted them to remember that there was a time in which they needed to be saving and that he had saved them. They literally learned their theology at the supper table. That's what we're doing today. This is steeped in theology, the most important theology, that we needed saving and that God has saved us, and that there's only one way of that salvation, and that's through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're required to reenact this in the same way that they were required to reenact the Passover, but Jesus converts this meal. He takes this old recipe and takes something that reminded us something from the past. It's another reason why this is important. And he turned it into something that made them hunger for something that they really needed, something yet future. This recipe of the spotless lamb that was required for them on that day, they would be reminded of this lamb. Now, the lamb himself was breaking the bread, pouring the wine, saying, This is mine, broken for you. Broken? Broken by him. My blood, poured for you, right? Poured by who? Poured by him. God's lamb would deliver us from death. It was to remind us there, its place there to remind us that we needed saving and God saved us. We needed to be rescued and God sent his son Jesus to rescue us. Purpose of this meal. Such a beautiful meal. He converts Passover, this old recipe, into a new recipe called the Lord's Supper and he does it by simply saying, take, eat, this is my body. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. So built upon this old recipe to remind us that we needed saving and that, in fact, God has done that for us. So it's important for that reason. It's important for a third reason. It's, it's a meal that exposes our hearts. And I think this is very intriguing to me. It's the most intriguing thing about this whole thing. So he, he says to the disciples, starts the whole meal out by saying, one of you tonight is going to betray me. There are several things that are important about it. Number one, they believed him. If Jesus stood up in this room if I said to you today, maybe hey, let's not let's take Jesus out of this, because I'm not sure if they really understood who Jesus was. Let's just say I sit up today and says one of you is going to betray me. Would you believe me? Some of you here would think, the pastor is a kook. He's paranoid. Some of you would say, well, everything the pastor says must be right. Most of you would say, most of you go eat a Luby's or something and never think another thing about it, Right? Now, they just thought Jesus was, they were coming to the grips with the understanding of who Jesus was, but they weren't truly up on 100% theology here thinking he was fully the son of God. They were still some questions in their heart as they demonstrate that through the rest of this night and the next couple of days. So, but it's interesting that he says, one of you is going to betray me. They all believe him. They demonstrate it because they all go around and say, could it be me? Now, number one, the fact that they believe him. Number two, the fact that they don't say, we know who it is. It was Judas, right? It's interesting. You have a room full of hand-picked men. I would suggest to you some of the wisest men that have ever lived, and yet they don't think Judas is it. No one says, I know who it is. It's him with the eyes too close together and the squeaky voice. Notice, the most, one of the most wicked men that has ever lived, and they didn't know who he was. Now, these are some of the wisest men that have ever lived. So what does that tell you about you? Can you be deceived? Be very deceived careful don't ever think that you've got it all figured out don't because as soon as you do here's what happens the shepherd goes that way and you don't need the shepherd i don't need the shepherd because i know what's happening i can see no you can't no you can't apart from dependence upon the shepherd and and the infusion of the spirit in your life the evil you can't see so learn that they didn't know they believed him they didn't know it was judas and they thought it was them Everybody went around there, would you say, could it be me? I mean, I would like to think that I would have said, or maybe I would be ashamed to say, I would like to, I would like to think that I would probably say, no way it's me. It's interesting that, that the ready, fire, aim, Peter, who otherwise would have shot his mouth off, is one of this group that says, could it be me? One of the reasons why this meal is so important, both at that time and at this time, because it is a meal that exposes our hearts. It's a serious thing. Yes, this is representative of his body, representative of his blood. We don't change anything. Nothing else is intended to change. It's just meant to point to something that was real, something that is still real today, the body and blood of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us. But it's made to point out something that's very real about us, our betrayals. They saw each one of them thought, I could could see myself doing this. I could see myself in a desperate situation, betraying. By the way, they all left him that night, didn't they? He predicts it. Keep reading here. Look at what he says. This is my body. This is my blood. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after this, I've been raised up. You will all go before me, Galilee. You're all going to betray me. You're all going to run off. You're all going to flake out. So on the one hand, they are saying, I can see myself being a flake. Jesus says you're exactly right with that. I can see myself being a betrayer. Jesus says you're right on with that. You got it with that. See, this, this is a tough meal because it points out the fact that we're all flakes. We're all betrayers. We've all broken his law, and we've all broken his heart. And we've been caught red-handed. It's a serious meal. Pennsylvania police recently caught a man red-handed, in particular one Robert Glenn Potter, uh, literally red-handed. What I mean by that is his neighbor next door was cooking a big pot full of uh, um, meatballs and uh, tomato sauce, and uh, I guess the smell got to him. Because when his neighbor went inside his house, Mr. Potter went next door into his garage and stole all the meatballs and all the tomato sauce, took it inside of his house. So the guy comes back, he's, praying. he's preparing for this big get-together at his house, big gathering. He goes out into his garage, and where's all the meatballs? Where's the tomato sauce? So he calls the police, So the police come over, and they, you know, how do you investigate the stealing of food? And so they don't know what to do. They take his statement, and they decide they're going to go door-to-door, canvas the community, see if anybody saw anybody, somebody they didn't recognize in the community. Well, the first place they go is to Mr. Potter's house. And unfortunately for him, when he comes to the door, he has just spilled the tomato sauce on his hands, and the smell of, of, the, of the sauce is coming out of his house. He's literally caught red-handed. Anyway, they throw him in jail. True story. But like him, we've been covered with the guilt of our sin. And this special meal, part of its purpose is to show us that. It's to catch you. It's to expose your heart. It's to do heart surgery. doesn't mean sinners can't come to it. It just means we need to understand when we come to it that we're sinners. Don't think high and mighty. Don't think you're better than anybody else. The attitude of the disciples of it, could it be me? Yeah, it can be you. That's the attitude we need to have. We need to come before the Savior and say, examine my heart. Search me. Search me. Not a... I'm okay, and so God. therefore God must love me because I'm awesome. That attitude is an unworthy way to take of this meal. So it's special because it exposes our hearts, and finally it's special because uh, it satisfies our deepest hungry. I know you're probably familiar, you remember from school, uh, them telling you that our, that our tongue is able to taste five sensations. Uh, I'll name them for you. Sweet, salty, savory, sour, bitter. You remember that? They're now saying that there is a sixth one. They haven't codified it yet because they're having a hard time uh, naming it. Uh, They're calling it, at least for now, they're calling it starchy. Your tongue is able to taste starchy stuff. And the reason they're calling it starchy is because they're not really sure what to call it because unlike the other senses or sensations that your tongue can taste, uh, that are the same no matter where you live, no matter what culture you live in. This this taste is something that changes dependent upon the culture. For instance, if you're from Western culture like us, this taste tastes like bread or or uh, noodles. Uh, if you're from the East, though, it tastes like rice. And so they're calling it starchy right now because they're not really you can't call it ricey or bready or whatever. I don't know. The conclusion, nonetheless, is simply this: that they said that the new finding was that their body, our body, knows what it wants. And it hungers for it. And uh, I would say, okay, there is one more taste that we need to add to our sensations, and here's what it is. The meal that was first eaten 2,000 years ago that we reenact on a regular basis inside of the churches that Jesus has bought with his blood, that meal demonstrates a seventh thing that we hunger for. We hunger, listen, for fellowship with God, for the forgiveness of God. Can you feel that? Can you taste it? being made right with God, belonging to Him, being guided by Him, can you taste it? It's a taste that we all have. We have it. We can have everything in this world that the world has to offer, wealth, education, prestige, even religion, but we still hunger for something. Barbara Walters did a, a unique interview As she often did, but this time she did it with three special celebrities from three different walks of life. Three men that were famous, had become famous, uh, mostly in retirement by the time she did their interview. The first person she interviewed was Johnny Carson. I don't know if you remember remember him. Everybody my age surely does, but the rest of you young ones will have no idea who he was. She interviewed him. He was the epitome of, of, as you would expect, of being a playboy. had a bunch of women, had a bunch of wives, done a bunch of things, bought a bunch of money, made a bunch of mistakes, basically just led a hedonistic life. And the conclusion of his interview was he was pretty much just, he had done it all and was fed up with it. And then she interviewed the other extreme, Walter Cronkite, this uh, man also in retirement who was uh, suave, uh, nevertheless humanist, uh, worldly philosopher, didn't know whether there really was a God or didn't seem to care, uh, was confident in his own knowledge but not really confident in anything else. The, the, the third person that she interviewed was uh, as much as a contrast between Johnny Carson and Walter Cronpack, then she interviewed Johnny Cash. as Like I said, to, to round out the three, Johnny Cash, and again, some of you young ones may not know who Johnny Cash was, but just understand this. He was an outlaw, uh, he was a drug addict, he was an alcoholic, he was a brawler, and a, on top of that, a country and western singer. Uh, he was in jail, he needed to be in jail way more. He, he, in this interview, was a totally different man, though he confessed his addiction to alcohol, to drugs, the fact that he nearly destroyed his own life, destroyed uh, his marriage, damaged his kids, and the whole interview, the whole process... Not just his interview, but the whole other two interviews were thrown into this great uh, contrast, because about halfway through Johnny Carson, I mean Johnny Johnny Cash began to talk about his relationship with Jesus Christ, that he'd come to the saving faith of Jesus, trusting Jesus as his personal Savior. He told. Uh, Barbara Walters was the change in his life that meant everything to him. Of all the things that he'd done and all the things that that he had tried to do and accomplish in his life, he he began to state to her how important his relationship with Jesus Christ. It threw him to in the to the backdrop of these two men who had hoped in and continued to hope in what they could do for themselves. Johnny Johnny Cash stop hoping in himself, he says, and start hoping in Jesus. He concluded the interview saying this to uh, Barbara Walters. He says, "I have found that Jesus indeed is the bread of life." He says to her. Because he satisfies something in myself that no physical hunger can. Something that Christians have been saying for a very long time. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, says the same thing. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless without thee. The purpose of this meal is to remind us of that, that we hunger for him, that we need his forgiveness that we need a relationship with Him, that we need to be made right with Him. It's a reminder because, you know what, we need that reminder. We need to be one up on that on a regular basis. I want to ask you please to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we enter into a time of celebrating this supper together. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, this is, this is, this is the supper of the Savior. He's saved us. He's broken this bread Himself. He's poured this wine himself because it demonstrates that it's him he laid his life down it's him who shed his blood no one takes his life from me he says but I lay it down of my own accord he died for you no one took it from him no one asked it from him he died to pay for your sins he died to pay for your sins to offer you eternal life the question I have for you today is have you accepted that eternal life Have you accepted the life that Jesus bought, that he paid for, that his hands worked for and provided for you? See, it's not enough to know that Jesus is the Savior. You have to know him as your Savior. Do you know him as your Savior? Can you say that? I'm not asking if you're a religious person. I'm not asking if you've read the Bible or if you pray. I hope you do all those things. No, salvation isn't things that you do. Salvation is a person and your relationship with him. Jesus said this of himself, no one comes to the Father except through me. Are you coming, listen, to God through the Son? You don't make your deal with God. God has made his deal with you. In his Son alone there is life. Have you trusted it? Have you had a personal encounter with God's son, Jesus, in which you've accepted what he's done for you? It's a gift. It's a gift. He offers it to you. You just simply have to accept it. Maybe today, for the first time in your heart, you need to pray a prayer or something like this. Jesus, I accept your gift of eternal life. I accept the forgiveness that you've provided. I accept the sacrifice that you made to make me right, to to fill this hunger that I have to be forgiven by God, be glorified in our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.